Here we go. Roll Here video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand, and today we are continuing our history of Melvin Van Peebles by learning a bit more about the political and cultural movements of the late 60s and early 70s that have shaped our understanding of race and art up until the present day. And to do that, I am speaking to Dr. Amy Abugo Ongiri. They are the director of ethnic studies at the University of Portland and author of the book, Spectacular Blackness, The Cultural Politics of the Black Power Movement and the Search for a Black Aesthetic, which I found to be an absolutely eye-opening and incredibly well-researched read. Amy, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you for saying that. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for being here. Now, you start your book with a brief story, which I'm going to share now to kind of give us a, a historical starting point. So it's Mississippi, 1966. And a man named James Meredith, who at this point is known for being the first African-American student to graduate from the University of Mississippi. And um, he begins a one-man march across the state of Mississippi to highlight violent racism and encourage voter registration, which he called the March Against Fear. Now, interestingly enough, Meredith did not at this point associate with, as from my understanding, he did not associate with a major civil rights organizations, and he would later be a, a bit of a conservative politician. But anyway, he starts this one-man march, and on day two, he is shot and severely injured by a sniper. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. and two members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Stokely Carmichael and Willie Ricks, go to finish his march. And by the time they get to Jackson, Mississippi in June, they are joined by 15,000 people. However, this is perhaps not the most memorable moment from this event because during this march, Stokely Carmichael, who had been an activist since 1961 and by this point had become disillusioned with the white American political power structures, gets arrested. And upon his release, he spoke to a small audience during which he utters two words which ring loud and clear to this very day, black power. In this moment, June 1966, what does he mean by this? Well, you know, there was a lot of tension between the student activists involved with the civil rights movement and the older activists who were mostly like from the church, like Martin Luther King and people like that. Um, there were also um, factions from organized labor, but um, there was a lot of tension about nonviolence as a um, methodology. And in fact, they, on that specific march, there's footage where... Um, they're marching, King and Carmichael are marching next to each other, and someone um, yells something and throws something from the side, and Martin Luther King has to physically restrain Stokely Carmichael from responding in kind. Um, so there was a, a lot, there was a lot of support for nonviolence among students, but there was also some tension about what that would mean. And Black Power was kind of uh, open rejection of a lot of the tenets of the civil rights movement, specifically um, the desire to assimilate into American democracy. That was what the civil rights movement wanted to do. It was a kind of rejection of that, but it was also a rejection of nonviolence as a, as a tactic. Um, so 
that uttering black power led to things like instead of saying we shall overcome, you know, Stokely Carmichael was famous for saying we will overrun. Um, it was really a, a aggressive assertion of rights that the civil rights movement more passively wanted to be assimilated into the project of U.S. democracy. So it was really a, a rejection of assimilation and a rejection of nonviolence. What was the response sort of in that moment, both from the crowd assembled and from, you know, Martin Luther King and from other activists? It's really the beginning of the end of the coalition that held together the civil rights movement. Civil rights movement was made up of a variety of groups. And um, when the student nonviolent coordinating committee breaks away and then led by Stokely Carmichael, they throw out the white people who had been, been involved in the freedom rides and stuff out of the student nonviolent coordinating committee and say, this is going to be a black group now. That's really the beginning of the end of this coalition of civil rights activists. And in a way, they were on the cusp of all their major victories with the 64 and 65 Voting Rights and Civil Rights Act. So um, it was in a way ready to be over. But that that uttering that phrase, Black Power, was really the beginning of the end of civil rights as a move, as a cohesive movement and the beginning of Black Power. And that same year that Stokely Carmichael first articulates this vision, we have two activists in Oakland, California, who are also dissatisfied and disillusioned with the accommodationist policies of the groups they're a part of, and they decide to found a new type of militant revolutionary group. Their names are Bobby Seale and Huey Newton, and they found the Black Panther Party. Now, what do they hope to achieve? And is this in line with Carmichael's vision of Black Power? Black Power is really a large kind of category um, that includes like self-determination within the United States, the articulation of um, decolonization across the globe. Um, and also um, within the United States, there's groups who want to break away and create a separate Black Republic within the United States. So there's really a bunch of aims being kind of articulated under the banner of black power. And the phrase is actually first used by the novelist Richard Wright, who um, visits Kwame Nkrumah. Ghana is the first like African country to be decolonized. So he visits Nkrumah and looks at um, his movement for decolonization and is actually quite critical of it. Um, so that's really the first time in the late 50s when that phrase is used. But when it's used in the U.S. starting in the late 60s and 70s, um, it's um, really um, has a, a variety of goals and agendas, but the Black Panther Party, they were very clear. They had 10 specific things they wanted. And of those 10 things, um, three specifically have to do with police violence. So they wanted an end to the violent white supremacy in their community, which they saw being articulated through the police. Um, but also they wanted land, rights, freedom, like the basic things that all people want, but in a specifically separate, self-determined, and black way. And that's really different than the civil rights movement. And it's a basic program, and it simply says exactly what black people have been crying for for 400 years. One, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our own black communities. Two, we want full employment for our people. Three, we want decent housing fit for shelter of human beings. Four, we want an end to the robbery the black community by the white racist businessman. Five, want decent education that teaches us about the true nature of this racist, decadent system. Education that teaches us about our true history and our role in society and the world today. Six, 
want all black brothers to be exempt from military service. Seven. Seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. Eight, we want all black brothers and sisters held in federal, county, state, city, jails, and prisons to be released because they have not had a fair trial. They've been tried. They've been tried by all white juries who have no understanding of the average reasoning man in the black community. Number nine, this is where Brother Hugh is being caught. We just want the courts to make sure we have peers on the jury or people from the black community as defined by their jive constitution, the so-called United States. The 10 summary with the major political objective that is, we want land, bread, housing, clothing, education, justice. We want peace. Major political objectives, we want a black plebiscite, the UN, the black colonial subjects would participate, dealing with, analyzing, projecting politically upon the race's atrocities that have been as black people in this nation. One thing that I've always been curious about is that there was a it seems to be sort of an inherent tension after fighting for uh, desegregation that then there seems to be a fight for kind of a self segregation. How are these two How are these two ideas different, and how do these uh, individuals sort of see that difference? Well, I think at the end of um, kind of at the end of the civil rights movement, there's this question of like what will integration into the wider society mean for black people. Um, but there's also, so mainstream society is asking that. And that question's kind of being answered through cinema um, with things like um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and Lilies of the Field and those films that try to imagine in a really gentle way what integration could look like. But then there's also the black question of what will it mean? Um, so there's a question of what will integration mean for American culture? But at the same time, black people are asking, what will this mean to, for us? Like, how will this change our culture? How will it change our participation with America, the wider American culture, but also ourselves? How will we articulate ourselves as a separate and discrete people in relationship to assimilation and integration? And um, it W.E. it's kind of forgotten now, but W.E.B. Du Bois, who, who, you know, who's an important founder of the NAACP, one of the key groups for civil rights, towards the end, abandons the project of integration actually leaves the United States and lives the rest of his life in Africa. But he calls civil rights um, race suicide, basically, that black people will not be able to maintain blackness with desegregation. So there's this kind of anxiety working through mainstream culture, but also through black culture. And I think in response to that, we get things like the black arts movement and the black power movement that want to think about the uniqueness of black culture and what it means politically, culturally, socially. In your book, you talk about Huey Newton uh, emphasizing, quote, the importance of creating moments of dynamic performative action that would then create the visual symbols that would become shorthand instructions for other revolutionary actions. And what does he mean by performative action? And I, I take it he doesn't mean posting a black square to Instagram. Well, yeah, I don't. I, I think that they didn't in a certain way. You know, they were kids in junior college, basically. And I don't think they understood how big their movement had the potential to get. So when they're just starting it, their hope is that they'll be able to 
do these actions that let, like Huey Newton was famous for saying, let the police, let the people know that the police aren't bulletproof. Um, so they were very much watching revolutionary action in other countries and saying like, well, we don't know if we can overthrow the U.S. government, which was their stated aim, actually. But um, we know that we can plant the seed of revolution through the actions we take and demystify the power of white supremacy. So like they, I mean, they were famous for patrolling the police. When the police would pull you over, they would roll up and then make sure that the police were, were adhering to the law, um, which part was part of the reason that got the national exposure because that was such an explosive thing to do. But they did it to show people that you can question the police. Like the police shouldn't have ultimate power over your life. I, I think at the time that he was kind of articulating that, he didn't know that it would become this global movement, but um, they were really invested in performing revolution so other the people could see that it was possible. Um, and that that was a big goal of black power in general, which is why Larry Neal called the black arts movement the sister concept to black power. And really, there, there was always a desire for a cultural wing of this military and political movement, because part of it was to show people how to be emancipated, how to be free. Absolutely. And we'll definitely get to the black arts movement a little bit later. But just staying on the Panthers for a little bit, they talk about... Uh... You, you introduced this phrase in your book, I guess, that they talk about called armed propaganda. What, is, what does armed propaganda mean? Well, for one thing, like one of their famous programs was like food giveaways. Um, and they wanted to and part of the reason we have the federal um, free lunch program in schools is because it was kind of happening in tandem as, as the Panthers were doing their free breakfast programs. But they wanted to show the ways in which a community could take care of itself. Um, and we, we associate them so much with military might, but one of the reasons that um, Hoover identified them as the most dangerous, you know, um, group in America was because of the free breakfast program. Um, just the power to translate actions into these, it wasn't performance in the way that we think of performative activism now. It was a performance to show people what, what that liberation was possible. So the um, the health clinics, the free breakfasts were all part and parcel the, with patrolling the police and doing these more militarized actions um, of showing people that liberation was possible now, not later, now. So they knew that they were a, a, a relatively small group doing these things, but if they do these things and then get media attention for these things, they can demonstrate what is possible on a much broader scale. Now, you say in the book, um, you say one of the major unacknowledged and unexplored ways in which the Black Panther Party influenced African-American culture was through valorizing the brothers on the block as the authentic repositories of the Black experience. How has this focus of authenticity affected African-American art and African-American life you know, post Black Panthers. Well, we know, and especially if anyone's listened to your earlier episodes, we know that the media was selling a really powerful script of disempowered masculinity. I thought your um, episode where you talk about the actor Step and Fetch It um, was really interesting because that was the image of black people, black men in particular, because the Panthers were. Pre predominantly female membership, but they were very interested in this project of reconstructing black masculinity that had been torn down um, through, you know, these years of representation of black men as weak, 
um, lazy, um, shiftless, and they really wanted powerful images of black men to kind of tell a different story. Um, so that that idea was really working against this idea of a disempowered black masculinity and to really script something. They were very conscious. I mean, of everything, everything they did, they were very conscious of their image appeal through media. And I think that's part of their power, actually. And that's why they're remembered, because there were a lot of black power groups. But Black Panthers is the one that tends to be remembered because they were so consciously using the media and they were consciously fighting against things, re- Hollywood's representation of black men in particular. Tell me if you agree with this. It kind of struck me that like, America has always been in love with this sort of like rags to riches narrative. And it feels like in some ways by this this idea of putting the onus of authenticity in these strong black men who are existing maybe in poverty or like just living a more ge- like a genuine version of their life as opposed to what the Hollywood presentation was, that they're really sort of like rolling in black identity into the this broader American narrative of rags to riches and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Do you think, do you agree with that? Or do you think that it's a, a slightly different take? Well, I think that especially this period lays the blueprint for how we think of black people now as urban kind of uh, sophisticated in relationship to clothing, but also this kind of like really authentic idea of masculinity. Um, and I think that, um, the rags to riches thing actually did, this group was incredibly appealing to white people. Um, As much as they wanted to speak for and represent um, uh, black people, they were incredibly appealing to white people. And part of the reason they were appealing was because they seemed to uh, offer this really authentic experience of masculinity and sexuality in particular. Um, So I think that was a big part of their appeal. And definitely the um, rags to riches thing is a narrative that they kind of fit into and kind of, you know, several of the people involved were actually very middle class, but who they really celebrated was this idea of like this kind of working class black masculinity. So you touched a little bit earlier upon their use of the media. Uh, So what was sort of their what was their strategy for using the media and and you talk a lot about this in the book so i kind of want to have some follow ups on this how but how did they use the media to their advantage i think a very initially they just wanted to get attention on their viewpoint and their perspective so when they go to the courthouse armed you know um they they in that period you could you california you could open carry they're going to this California State House to protest while open carrying, knowing there's going to be a bunch of newspaper photographers there for other reason, and that they're going to be struck by the image of all these black men with guns. Um, and so the gun kind of becomes a symbol for the kind of power that they were offering. So initially, I think they were just using the media to try to get attention on their, you know, their perspective. Um, but they very quickly became a pretty sophisticated media. I don't want to use the word empire, but essentially an empire. Their newspaper was global, had a global reach. Um, they had a publishing house. Um, uh, many of the books are still in circulation um, to really get, again, they were interested not only in doing revolution, but modeling revolution. And they're using the media became a way where they could get the word out very quickly. So initially they just used their the attractiveness of their kind of appeal visually but um, as it developed, then they developed a publishing house, a newspaper, you know, 
that had a really far reach. So it was very comprehensive. Yeah. And I think that that's that's certainly a part of the story that I was totally ignorant of. My understanding was about the depth of a t-shirt, you know, like I had the visual image of like leather jacket, black beret, gun, and like this image of strength. But that much broader network and the 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 functionality that they had developed as an organization was totally lost on me before reading your book. And you kind of speak to this, but you say you have a quote that says the problem with the Panther incursion into visual culture was that it actually worked too well. What do you mean by that? Well, it kind of promised a revolution they weren't able to deliver. So even a lot of times, like they're the thing that they they carefully cultivated an image. Um, the uniform they picked was in contrast to the way civil rights workers dressed, which was very agricultural. They would wear overalls or they would get dressed up in their Sunday best. The Panthers picked an image, their outfit, based on the fact that it was urban and cool, like urban sophistication. Um, so they really wanted to be seen and they wanted to be seen as now and even futuristic. Uh, but often like they were carrying guns, but the guns weren't loaded. So they weren't really ready for revolution, but they were ready to present the possibility of revolution. But people believed their promise of being ready to overthrow the U.S. government. And they just strategically um, in a military sense, they were just not obviously ever ready to do that. You know, one of the things that I loved about your book is that you talk about capitalism's ability to commodify counterculture. And, you know, as a counterculture loving young person in particular, I wasn't fully aware of how the the rebellious art that I loved, you know, was being so effectively marketed to me. But it seems like you argue that you don't necessarily think this is a bad thing. I, am I correct? Well... I mean, it, was, it wasn't a bad thing for them in that they're one of the only groups whose message still resonates and continues. Like, their ability to use the media kind of worked. But it, how did it work? Like, again, their goal was to overthrow the U.S. government. That didn't happen, right? Like, their goal <laughs> was to end Black mass incarceration. In fact, it got much worse after that moment. So, like, if we're being real about it, they didn't achieve very many of their goals, but they did achieve things that I think were not their goals, which but which help black people. You know what I mean? Like this um, kind of new blackness, the blackness that we have now is kind of a product of that moment and um, the ways it contested um the ideas about who black people were up until that moment, I think was really powerful and really effective and global. Like I think they had a global impact. So no, they didn't end capitalism or U S empire. No, they didn't end up in black mass incarceration, but they continued a kind of possibility of liberation where people are still, you know, kind of living through, like you can trace a direct line between the Black Panther Party and Black Lives Matter as a movement. Where do you see that that line sort of strongest? Would it be sort of the, the critique of uh, abusive police practices? Yeah, I think, I mean, yes, that. And also this idea of um, using mass culture, because Black Lives Matter really used like digital culture really well. They were using what they had at the time, which was newspapers um, and traditional media, Black Lives Matter continued their kind of innovative streak by using, you know, digital media in new ways. 
um, and being very much concerned uh, in representing police violence, like visualizing it. Um, Because Black people knew about police violence. That wasn't a new story to Black or Indigenous or Latinx people. But I think now the majority of white people believe there's a problem with the police. And that's really um, Black Lives Matter successfully took the visual narrative, took hold of it and reworked it. And that, I think, is directly a legacy of the Black Panthers. In America, uh, Black people are uh, treated very much as uh, the Vietnamese people or any other colonized people because we're used, we're brutalized, the police in our community occupy uh, our uh, area, our community as a foreign troop occupies territory. And the police are there not to, uh, in our community, not to uh, promote our welfare or uh, for our security and our safety, but they're there to contain us, uh, to uh, brutalize us, to murder us, uh, because they have their orders uh, to do so. People aren't here for that yet. They're not really aware because they know some shit's going on in this country somewhere. But a lot of people out there don't know where it's at. They think it's the black people doing it. <laughs> that uh, <clears throat> all those riots are causing my life to be miserable in all areas, you know. And they really haven't focused in on the fact that it's the pigs and their mentors, the people who control the pigs, the power structure, those bald-headed businessmen at the Chamber of Commerce, you see? They're not turned on to uh, that power structure. They just, they just know that life is becoming increasingly miserable for everybody. But when they find out who it is that's causing the trouble and who it is that's uh, making life miserable and who it is that's responsible for uh, all their sons being murdered in Vietnam. When they get tuned into that, then they're all going to be just like the Panthers. Now, I feel like you mentioned this in the book as well, but I just want to double check. Was it, is it because of the Black Panthers that the term black came into wider circulation? For sure. They, I mean, it wasn't just the Black Panthers. Again, um, I feel like there's always this thing to like attribute to a single group or a single person. Like yeah. this is a, the cultural zeitgeist for black people in that moment. So it wasn't just the Panthers, but certainly the Panthers popularized the idea of black is beautiful. I think there were major, major people popularizing that. And also like, they very carefully cultivated their image. So like natural hair and things like that. Of course they didn't come up with the idea of wearing like the Afro, but they definitely popularized it. And they knew like Huey Newton looked like a movie star and they knew, you know, certain people like could really represent in almost a Hollywood esque way, this revolution. And they knew that and they were pushing that like self-consciously. As you mentioned earlier, at this same time, sort of mid to late 60s, you also have something called the Black Arts Movement, which, as you mentioned, Larry Neal described as the aesthetic and spiritual sister of Black power. So what was the Black Arts Movement and how did its vision differentiate and support that of the Panthers? Well, there was a little bit of um, tension in that um, the Panthers were against what they called cultural nationalism. So there were other groups um, like Kwanzaa also comes out of this moment. And that's a group um, called us right in based in Los Angeles. And they were very much like wearing dashiki, speaking Swahili, an emphasis on the cultural, the um, and a culture of Africa, like pushing an African culture into the Americas. Um, the Panthers were against that, labeled it cultural nationalism, thought it was kind of useless. But at the same time, they were very smart about using culture. So there is some tension about like the cultural, but the Black Arts Movement basically refracted 
arts through the political and the political moment was black power, if that makes sense. And what are some examples of work that would be considered a part of the black arts movement? Really, there's so much. In music, there was a kind of interface with free jazz. So people like John Coltrane, Albert Eiler, Max Roach, Charles Mingus, Sun Ra, all did like black arts influenced projects, which Again, the main imperative of the Black arts movement was to define a Black aesthetic. Like, what is uniquely Black about Blackness? And again, this is at a moment where there's, like, anxiety about integration and assimilation. So, but what is uniquely Black? Um, so the, in music, we have all this free jazz. In the arts, we have people like Amiri Baraka, Sonia Sanchez, June Jordan... Black art. Poems are bullshit unless they are teeth or trees or lemons piled on a step or black ladies dying of men leaving nickel hearts, beating them down. Fuck poems and they are useful. Would they shoot, come at you, love what you are, breathe like wrestlers, or shudder strangely after peeing. We want live words of the hip world, live flesh and coursing blood, hearts, brains, souls splintering fire. Really theater and poetry were the places where the black arts movement really thrived because they saw these as uh, movements that spoke to the people. Um, so like the Black Arts Repertory, which is kind of the foundational movement for the Black Arts Movement when Amiri Baraka and a group of artists formed the Black Arts Repertory Theater in Harlem in 1965. Um, they And Larry Neal puts out these manifestos around it. They're really wanting to make an art that connects to the people. Um, and they felt like theater was one of the things that could do that, but also poetry and spoken word and things like that. And of course, Amiri Baraka, who I guess at the time was Leroy Jones, of course, has played Dutchman, which uh, is a fantastic play. And then is later made into a movie, a British film, British production, I think. Um, now, I, jumping ahead just a bit. So 1968 is this sort of cataclysmic turning point, of course. Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. And you quote um, Black Panther Eldridge Cleaver uh, in your book. And he says, quote, uh, the death of Dr. King signals the end of an era and the beginning of a terrible and bloody chapter that may remain unwritten because there may be no scribe left to capture on paper the Holocaust to come. And at the same time, the tenuous alliance between uh, SNCC and the Panthers devolves. Huey Newton is in jail. Uh, the Free Huey campaign is is ongoing, and there are increasing attacks on the movement from the police and the FBI. Now, how do Black Arts Movement members attempt to make meaning out of all this? Um, it's interesting because the kind of Black Holocaust that he was afraid of happening, I would argue in certain ways did happen, and it happened through mass incarceration. But um, I think they, obviously they weren't, foretelling the future. So I think they were imagining this big revolutionary battle in keeping with what had happened in Vietnam or Algiers or Cuba, when what happened in the U.S. was actually quite more insidious. And I think um, one of the ways the Black Arts Movement addressed the like burgeoning incarceration crisis was through 
um, a kind of connection between the artist inside and the artist outside. Um, so we have um, George Jackson doing the political philosophy, but then we also have all these um, incarcerated poets who kind of rise to prominence in that period. Um, so it's really a connection between like people who are incarcerated and not that where we really see um, Black arts movements, I think, responding to what the upcoming crisis of incarceration. What about the divisions within like the political movement in general, it's like between SNCC and the Panthers and what's happening with uh, with Huey Newton? And what are some of the response there? Well, again, it's really there's a break in the Panthers. Um, in the late 60s, it begins to kind of the fissure begins to grow between um, uh, Huey Newton's people who wanted to really look at the situation in the United States and the Americas and um, the kind of segment who wanted to Eldridge Cleaver group who wanted to like connect the struggle in the U.S. to wider global struggles. So he goes to Algeria and Tunisia and stuff like that. Um, a bunch of Panthers go to East Africa and they're hoping to spark like global revolution. Um, whereas the Newton faction, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton are really hoping for change in the U S and in the Americas. And that kind of what's a tiny fissure grows partially through COINTELPRO and the U S government pushing that um, thing grows into this huge break. And so the party starts to break apart because of that tension between the local and the global. So even within the group, there's tension, but there's also tension between groups. So on the campus uh, of UCLA, there's this famous moment where us and the Black Panthers um, have an armed shootout and two people are killed on the campus where, where they're trying to figure out how to do Black History Month. Like there's all this kind of like it's not it's not f- rhetorical fighting. It's like literal fighting. Um, so Bunchy Carter, Apprentice Bunchy Carter is killed on the campus and he's an important organizer. But then you also have the police killing Panther organizers in, like in Chicago. So there's all these kind of tensions both within and from outside the movement that really the political movement doesn't hold together. The cultural movement holds together much longer. Wow. I, d- I did not know about that. That's incredible. Um, uh now, just like you had sort of identified that the the Panthers kind of found this locus of authenticity in the brother on the block, it seems like you you write the Black Arts Movement is also searching to sort of find its um, face of authenticity, and they find it sort of in what they would categorize as more kind of like classical Black music of um, gospel, jazz, and blues. What was what were they thinking by sort of like? zoning in on those um, artistic forms. Well, it's interesting. There's a scholar named James Smethurst, and he says what they're trying for um, is a populist avant-garde because they were interested in things in a populist way that were no longer popular. So blues and jazz and stuff, they were already becoming sort of esoteric. They were no longer popular black dance music by the late 60s and 70s. They were becoming kind of esoteric, concert hall practices. Um, So they were interested in things in a populist way that were no longer popular. And they were also extremely, if we look at like uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, it's very avant-garde in a lot of ways. (laughs) Like, um, And so they were really an avant-garde with a kind of populist interest. Um, And again, that creates a kind of uh, tension in the aesthetic. 
Um, because the Black Arts Repertory Theater, one of the things they would do, they had a flatbed truck. And so they would take theater to the people. And a lot of times the people would boo and like throw things at them and absolutely reject it. Because if you know Amiri Baraka's work, it is so, you know, it's not simple. It's like very complicated. It's not, you know. So there was this kind of tension between trying to understand black people and by people like the working class and sub-working class but then also they were artists and intellectuals so they were articulating a very avant-garde vision of what that meant and that was also an extreme tension black poetry is not what shakespeare begot nor is it one with tennyson its psychedelic beats have little in common with Shelley and Keats. It has its own diameter. Not iambic pentameter. It has upon it... No rule of sonnet. No straight-laced corset. Nothing to force it. It shrieks. It streaks. It melts. It melts. It sings. It swings. It cries. It laughs. In verses or in paragraphs. It grooves. It moves. It's canny. Giovanni. It's a brand new school. Both, Both hot, hot and cool. cool. A, a blues beat. Bittersweet is deep, deep blue, bright red, high yellow, is loud, is proud, it's a wilder strum, a super drum, sets up its own condition, defies tradition, is shocks, it rocks, it mocks, it knocks, it's humor, drama, it talks about your mama, it's love, it's dissension, it's a brand new dimension, it's many, many tracks, so come, sit down with me and spiel and spat and so rap. And spree beneath this looming, blooming, black, 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 black poetry. <laughs> you write, quote, an essential problem of the black arts movement is the critics' inability to theorize the effects of commodification on African-American cultural production, which is tied to a fear of the effects of integration on the African-American community. The anxiety focuses in particular on the African-American middle class and a fear of losing the essential struggle quality. So what are some of the results of this problem that you identify? They were really invested in ideas of like soul and like what is at the heart of black expression and what is it and can we mine it for its meaning but again they were often interested in i mean it's i think um sweet sweetbacks is the perfect kind of movie to think about the problem because on the one hand he has earth wind and fire you know one of the most important you know, R&B bands do the album. But on the other hand, there's certain ways it's so inaccessible because he was really shaped as your earlier program shows by this kind of European aesthetic, I would argue. You know what I mean? Like just being in that kind of cultural milieu with Amos Vogel and those people, you know, he was interested in a kind of like non-Hollywood aesthetic, whereas what people know is Hollywood. So there's a kind of tension between like getting at authentic blackness and also this desire to create in these really avant-garde ways. So like the performer Albert Eiler, an important free jazz musician, tries to make an R&B album to make money, essentially, um, after the death of John Coltrane, who was supporting a lot of them, including Eiler, like financially. Um, he makes this album Newgrass, and it's just so slammed by critics. It's being like reexamined now because it's neither successfully R&B and it's neither successfully jazz is kind of a critique but really they were interested in this kind of interface between what they saw as authentic blackness which was rooted in black working class people and then the kind of avant-garde work that they were that artists actually always do when they're pushing their forms 
the, at the same time, you also mention how, you know, um, you say here that uh, William J. Harris, who uh, wrote a biography of Amiri Baraka, said, quote, no post-Black arts artist thinks of himself or herself as simply a human being who happens to be Black. Blackness is central to his or her experience in art. So do you feel that this is really the legacy of the Black arts movement? Yeah, I mean, my thing, I always say the way that we think of ourselves as Black now is really a product of the Black arts movement in a way that often isn't acknowledged. Um, And the Black art, you know, like um, Snoop Dogg says, well, I wouldn't be Snoop Dogg if there wasn't a Rudy Ray Moore, the filmmaker Rudy Ray Moore, who makes the Dolomite films. Like there's a certain way in which the way we think of ourselves as Black is because of this moment. And by that, I mean urban investment in certain kinds of like language and play with language, invest deep investment in historically black musical forms like but even just the switch from thinking of black people as primarily agrarian to thinking of them as primarily urban and northern really happens in this moment and it's partially a product of the great migration you know the second wave of the great migration but it's also a product of the fact that in this moment in places like harlem chicago new orleans people were really asserting through theater and poetry like definitional ideas of blackness as separate from other kinds of American articulations of identity and culture. How is this a new development from sort of like that shift in thinking of like the Harlem Renaissance? You know, what, what is the the change in the, in this, those decades that led to this moment? Sometimes people think of the black arts movement as a second, like black Renaissance, like the Harlem Renaissance, but they were so different in so many complicated ways. But one of the important ways was, um, the Harlem Renaissance is basically enabled by white patronage. And certainly there's some of that in the black arts movement, but the black arts movement, they're really interested in defining institutions. Like the Panthers created a a publishing house. Like there was broad street press, which was a Detroit based publishing house that published black stuff. Like people were interested in creating their own institutions to try to articulate blackness away from white cultural definers and creators. Um, and that's really different. It has really different effects. Also the black uh, Harlem Renaissance, they were interested in proving in certain ways that black people could do art and be artists. Whereas in the Harlem in, in the black arts movement, they're really interested in thinking about, well, what is blackness? How is it different? What shape does it take? Well, how is the worldview different? So it, they're really different moments. And they were also mooring blackness to black working class people. And in the Harlem Renaissance, they wanted to prove they were as good as white elites, you know. So W.E.B. Du Bois graduates from Harvard and does all these things, whereas they're the black arts movement. They're interested in defining themselves in relationship to everyday black people in urban northern urban centers. So they're really different moments. Yeah, fascinating. Well, I think that is a really good spot to leave it here for now. And uh, join us next time as Dr. Ongiri comes back and we're going to talk about Melvin Van Peebles' legendary film, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and the subsequent era of black exploitation filmmaking. All right, until next time, that's a wrap. Up the pizza,